This is Michael Reinhardt, welcoming you to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. We are led by our two hosts, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. This podcast is sponsored by the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a 50% discount on membership to our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use code POD. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and please feel free to leave us a rating or comment. This is Jody Westby, and I'm here with my co-host, Jerry Buckley. Today, we are honored to have with us Hari Hursty, one of the world's foremost experts on election security, who was featured in HBO's recent movie, Kill Chain, The Cyber War on America's Elections, and HBO's earlier movie on election security, Hacking Democracy. Kill Chain has been nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Investigative Documentary, this year, so you'll want to tune in to the Emmys next week on September 29 or watch it ahead of time on Amazon or HBO. They both offer Kill Chain uh, movie for your viewing pleasure. Hari is a Finnish computer programmer and former chairman of the board and co-founder of Ramman, where he supervised the development of the world's smallest two gigabit traffic analysis product that was later acquired by F-Secure Corporation. Hari's well-known for participating in the black box voting hack studies and the memory card hack demonstrated in Leon County is popularly known as the Hursty hack, which demonstrated serious security flaws in the voting systems of the Diebold election systems. Hari, there are many aspects to election security, but today let's focus on the cyber aspects. As a foundation for this discussion, Can you lay out the main areas of the voting process where cybersecurity is a concern? Well, thank you for having me. And and this is really something which is important to understand that when Help America Vote Act of 2002 created this three-odd billion dollar of funding for modernizing elections, a massive amount of a myriad of new systems, systems have been poured in the election environment. And we, we all have an idea in our head, our head that there's an election office and the election office has an IT department and the IT department has a security practice. Nothing really couldn't be further from the truth because most of the election office offices by numbers don't even have a permanent IT staff. Everything is outsourced. And when we look at the number of systems in, in these election offices, you really shouldn't have an IT department with extremely strong security practice, which just happens to do elections. We have been over-focusing in the conversation about the vote casting part and the intermediate tallying. But really, all of the systems in election office are equally vulnerable to hacking, and they all can have an impact into the election outcome. Depending to where you are, it all starts from auxiliary. I'm just going, going from further away from the process. So, for example, where campaign financing databases are maintained, in many places, those are, those are maintained in county level. In some places, they are maintained in the secretary state level. But if you hack an election campaign financing and campaign disclosure databases, you can implant false information before the election and discredit a candidate. Mm-hmm. If we look at the direct election process, it starts from a voter registration. Voter registration has a multiple data sources for everything from private associations to DMV. And then in that voter registration database, you compile 
the voter uh, role from all of these data sources. If anyone gets to hack to that, that will be devastating. And now by definition, because we are allowing online voter registration, that system has to be reachable from the internet one way or another. Then if you are in a jurisdiction which is using electronic poll books instead of physical paper poll books, the next thing is that you have to get the data from the statewide or countywide voter registration database into those poll books. And unfortunately, those systems are a, there's no standard way of, of getting that data over. So a very unsafe practices I use it there, uh, everything from emailing the databases over to the vendor who will be then using whatever software they have to format the data to be compatible with the ePoll book system, getting it back, using a unprotected cloud, a public cloud buckets uh, and whatnot, all of that has happened. And this is the step which is needed to get the voter roles formatted into the ePoll book system. So, so the ePoll, the, just for clarity for our listeners, the ePoll book is some little machine that sits there that you check in voters when they come to a polling place to say, I'm here to vote. Is that right? That is correct. And more often than not, these are general purpose consumer tablets, the tablet computers or consumer grade laptops, which has been just purpose for this without a proper hardening and proper executive measurements. Also, depending which vendor you're using, uh, many of the vendors are offering or requiring online connection to their cloud backend. So these systems, again, have to be uh, connected. Uh, you have to synchronize the electric checking stations across the polling location. There's a lot of polling locations that can have dozens of people who are checking in, so it has to synchronize that all which voters are. So you have, uh, have checked in. So you have to have at least a local area network, but in many vendors, you have to have internet live internet connection which is all the time updating the data to the cloud backend. And this is mostly done with a wireless in every step of the way, both wireless local network in the precinct and also wireless connectivity of a mobile phone network to the cloud backend. So again, if this part gets a uh, compromised, that is a problem. Now, the next step from this, in some jurisdictions, this is a, something which is very unfortunate a development. The... Uh, Ballot marking devices were originally conceived by Help America Vote Act as a method for people, for voters with disabilities and special needs to have access to the equal privacy of other voters. So it was intended to be an aiding device for uh, voters with special needs. In a recent few years, voting system vendors have been proposing successfully, unfortunately successfully, that these ballot marking devices would be started to be used as a general method of voting. That's putting another computer between the vote and the voter. And it also redefines what paper ballot means, because now the ballot is going to be something printed by the computer instead of what the voter marked. So now the electronic poll book has to be communicating with that ballot marking device, and then the ballot marking device is creating the ballot based on, for example, ballot stock. So what races the voter gets to vote is decided in many cases by what the electronic poll book is giving, is programming to the activation card, which is another small computer, a Java card. So that's another place, again, where you can influence the process. Now you have a ballot marking device, and unfortunately, a lot of jurisdictions have stipulated that the barcode on the ballot is the one which is counted. 
Of course, barcodes are not human readable, so humans cannot really verify. Even if you read it from the mobile phone, you cannot figure out what the barcode is. So there's another layer again where a hack can be uh, hack can be influencing the votes. How the barcode is created. You finally get after this to the voting terminal, which is either now reading the pep paper ballot, whether the paper ballot is barcode or human readable, or in some cases, the touchscreen. That's another place where it's another computer system which can be hacked. And that system is influenced by another system, which is in the election of his backend called election management system. That's which is defining the ballot style, defining how the votes are tallied, how many candidates you should be voting on this. Is there special rules? Where on a ballot is the mark, etc.? Another vulnerable system which is uh, which has been multiple times shown that that's vulnerable. So that's a whole ball of wax there. Now, after that, you get to end of the day, and you get two different processes going. You have the electronic ball books, which now have to report back to the statewide registration database, which voters voted. So there's a data flow from the electronic ball book system back to the statewide system and all the backend systems. And you have, of course, the votes, which are now reported from the voting terminals, with the exception of very few states, these are now reported back to the, a central tabulating system, which depending which make and model you have, it can be the same as the electron management system or separate system. Now, this is another vulnerable spot, again, subject to the voting, uh, subject to the hacking, because that's where all the votes are now tabulated, the results are generated. And then from there, it goes to yet another system, which is the election and reporting. And from the purpose of security, election officials are never, until recently, have never been worried about if election night reporting systems get hacked because they don't consider them to be real votes. It's unofficial, by the law, those are unofficial results. However, the media and general public don't see it that way. We have seen a number of times when uh, the election uh, reporting system have been hacked and it has caused riots in foreign countries when the results change overnight. But right now, when we look at the recent controversy in 2020 election, a lot of the so-called evidence, which is not evidence at all, has been derived from using election right reporting data, which is not even real votes, and created artificially votes from that data. So completely misusing the data, which has been created only for election night, unofficial results and visualization to make claims how votes were subtracted one candidate and given another. So this should underline for us that the election night reporting from the public trust perspective is extremely critical part of the, the chain of trust and creating the public confidence. And this has been not considered a critical. Now it should be critical. And especially it should be understood that today, uh, the, those data most of the time didn't even have a real votes. They were just saying total number of votes and, and given a very imprecise number just to give a percentage or give a color code how to color the, the visualization. Now that data has been drastically misused to create false so-called evidence. It's not evidence. It's not meant to be to create a arguments how elections were hacked. So this is just an overview. There's a lot of subsystems. And right. the most important part here is that every single one of these parts alone, if being compromised, will cause havoc undermine the public confidence or affect the outcome of the election. So just to summarize for our listeners and tell me if I get this right, we have the registration of the voter, 
We mm-hmm. have the checking in to vote. We have the ballot marking devices you covered. We have the voting machines, tallying of the votes, polling and election night reporting. Did I get all of those? An election, election management system, which tells the districting which voters should be getting which races and all of that, and which is also programming the voting terminals. Oh, you program the voting terminals. Yeah. Okay, so thank you for that. That's a nice foundation. Jerry, let me hand this to you. Ari, thank you so much for being with us today. We're truly privileged to be able to bring your expertise to our listeners in this time an important issue, and it clearly becomes more important by election. Uh, Building on the issues you've laid out, I don't think many people in America understand who does the managing of elections. Can you please tell us the role of the private sector in the election process and what is the role of election officials with respect to the issues you've just laid out? So, first of all, private sector is running elections one way or another. Uh, when you look at the different elements, there is a four or five companies which are doing uh, the electronic poll books. There are basically three companies which are doing a voter registration system, like I'm talking about market leaders. When you look at the election management system and the voting terminals, that's basically the whole 90% of the market is between three companies and election night reporting systems. That's basically three companies sharing that. Interestingly enough, same companies are not present in all of the segments. So any system put together is a combination of one vendor delivering one segment and then second company delivering most of the other stuff. Now, that's a problem. That's a problem, but that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem has been a slowly coming in uh, a new brand of companies called election management companies. They are typically uh, one company serving from one state to three states. And they have, t- they have become the outsourcing partner, which is in reality handling all the mission critical parts of the election process because they are actually operating the election management system for the county and jurisdictions. This has not been understood how dangerous uh, this uh, is because by the false claims of security by uh, the industry, uh, jurisdictions have not realized that they have been giving the keys to to the kingdom when they're outsourcing. There's about 20 companies in the United States which have a major role in that space. When I was recently uh, working for a secretary of state who wanted to know what is happening in that state, and remember there's two kinds of states that are bottom-up and top-down, and when you're at a bottom-up state, the secretary of state have very limited control over the counties. So this this state happened to have uh, 120 counties, and uh, when we started mapping out it was shocking to find that only two of the counties actually conducted their own elections. 118 of the counties have completely outsourced everything to two companies, either either or. And so all of a sudden, this critical infrastructure piece has no reporting requirements. They didn't even, even the Secretary of State didn't know the extent of the influence of these two companies. Neither of those companies are making voting machines. They are resellers, they are maintained, and most importantly, they are providing the services. The interesting thing about these companies is that they are, as I said, they're typically fairly local. They are usually marketed as a local businesses. And these companies have no security consciousness whatsoever. 
I have been uh, a uh, researching and and talking with those companies. Typical company is a, a is in a rundown strip mall or in a industrial warehouse building. No secure physical security. No understanding of physical security. No feeling that they need physical security. Uh, their websites are typically listing all the employees, telling a little bit of personal stories to make them likable, telling, you know, he has a dog called Terry and she's doing literature. Basically, all the second uh, phase authentication questions are typically on a website when you look at the employee lists. And they really don't, I mean, I spoke recently with a CEO of one of these companies and I asked, what do you do for your, because that's a, a company where they have a very high churn rate. Uh, they typically, it's a university state. So people come to work for them a few years. And then when they graduate, go away and, and next people came in. I asked, what is your, your background check process? And they were scratching their heads and say, well, a few years ago, we ran a credit check from one guy. And that was the extent of the background check. So this is a completely unmitigated risk right now, because even the, state top election officials don't know this private sector element, how powerfully it has been taking over since 2008, the United States elections. Really? Do those companies tally the vote? They don't tally the vote necessarily. And when I say necessarily, it means that in many cases, their employees are in the county on the election night operating the or being at least present when the votes are tallied. So even if they are, they are in a position of influence in every step of way, and in some places they are the people who provide the boys and girls or hands on the keyboard doing the tallying, even if, if that part of the process would be physically in the county headquarters. Also, these companies do provide sometimes a backup for whatever reason that they can tally the votes. Of course, this is something what they don't want to talk about much, but yes, in the reality, they are telling the vote because they influence every step of the way, even if they wouldn't have hands on the keyboard. And even if they, the computer wouldn't be physically in their premises, they are controlling how the telling is done. Interesting. Well, we've generally heard the 2016 election had cyber issues, and certainly that's covered in Kill Chain. But 2020, we hear, was much more secure. Is that right, Hari? Can you please compare the 2016 and 20 elections with respect to cybersecurity issues? So I make a little bit of joke about 2020 that 2020 was secured by coronavirus. <laughs> uh, the, the reason why I'm saying that is, first of all, the most unsecure systems in the United States, which were predicted to be used for 13% of the votes in 2020 without coronavirus, are the in-person touchscreen voting systems. And of course, because of massive using of mail-in voting and massive using of absentee voting in, in all the different versions of absentee voting, those systems were used way less than they would have been. So that single-handedly improved the election security posture by taking the unauditable and most vulnerable systems out of the picture as, as much as they did. So that's, that's one part. The second part is that even when you look what happened in 2016, uh, known hacks, the electronic poll book systems were hacked. And when you looked at the problems in voting, uh, long lines and whatnot, they were driven in 2016 by problems in electronic poll books. 
If you look the same picture in 2020, you see in primaries and special elections leading to 2020 election, for example, in Georgia, a six-hour lines and all kinds of problems. And those were also derived from the electronic uh, poll books and ballot marking devices. The change, what happened for the general election, was that, uh, again, less voters voted in person. So those sources of problems, which were same problem, was already causing problems in 2016, even when they were less deployed. Now, that was the difference between primary and general election. Those systems were less used percentage-wise and more dispersely used because of the uh, so, uh, more options for early voting. So that happened. And of course, the whole controversy about mail-in voting, I personally think mail-in voting shouldn't be used for anything else than exceptional circumstances because it opens the voters themselves to a localized problems, a voter coercion and all of that, which is not, it's a retail problem and it comes from close to your families or, or your, your society. It doesn't come from a community. It doesn't come from, from hacking. That's the reason why I'm not a fan of uh, of extending uh, mail-in voting to general population as a general method of voting. But in this case, again, we have been doing mail-in voting during the Second World War, during the First World War, during the Korean War, during the Vietnam War. We know how what are the risks, what are the shortfalls. We know how to mitigate against those. And also, since it's paper and since it's relying on paper trail, on signature verification, requesting the ballot, all of that, you have a trail which you can use to verify the election. It is noteworthy that, in again, all the claims of a people who were dead or whatnot voting, which have been unsubstantiated in the, in the audits and checks, it is noteworthy that this database used for mail-in voting and if it would be in-person in voting is the same database. So those same people have, would have been, the mail-in voting doesn't change who is in the database and who are on the opinion of the database able to vote. So it is the same system. And of course, we have to improve everything. And many of the, elect, uh, the voter registration systems are not maintained as well as they should. But because of the last moment changes and because it took out the most vulnerable systems and the systems which have been causing most uh, troubles, I feel that 2020 was way more secure election than 2016. Well, and and we had a lot of government surveillance on 2020. I mean, in, in 2016, we now know that NSA and FBI were watching certain aspects of what was going on with election systems. But in 2020, we really had a strong government presence monitoring what was happening, didn't we? So, of course, a lot of that information is classified still today, what actually happened. But yes, uh, 2020 was every all eyes on the ball, not only in the United States, but internationally. Yeah. Uh, remember that if the claims are that foreign adversaries uh, would be attacking elections, that wouldn't happen directly from it would be impossible to think such a stupidity that somebody would be from China going directly to the election office. It would require a setting up a, a common and control infrastructure on U.S. soil, which would be easy to see from the outside. So this is, this is something where, again, the public claims and public false 
evidence, false claims about the international traffic is just completely missing the understanding how even the trivial ransomware attacks are carried out. But everybody was watching this carefully and, and especially because of the botnets, we already had in January 2020 a news of a first botnet, foreign operated botnet to be taken down. So 10 months before the election, which was a, a botnet afraid to be potentially used for election manipulation and it was taken down. Yeah, thanks. Jerry? Yes, well, you know, uh, this is fascinating and, and clearly concerning. The Elections Assistance Commission, created by the Help America Act of 2002, you know, this is not a, a, an issue that we, we haven't uh, been wrestling with for quite a while. What are we doing at the national level to address these problems? What should we be doing? Should we have a national standard, hiring? So, first of all, we are in a very bad situation because the way everything has been set up today is that there is no standards for voting machines as shots. EAC is maintaining a volunteer voting system guidelines. The first word volunteer should already be an alarm bell. So there is no hard set standards. Uh, there are guidelines. Uh, the certification is done in, by the voting system vendors to by them hiring a certification lab, which they pay an obvious conflict of interest there. And of course, because of the way it's set up and it's volunteer that gives a little too much wiggling room for the voting system vendor and the laboratory to agree what, e what even gets tested. Now, just to make the bad things worse, we right now, the, the newest one is VVSG 1.1. A lot of the people don't understand that VVSG 1.1 is not used really uh, because it's volunteer. So vendors have been opting to use 1.0, which is two years earlier, instead of 1.1 as the guideline basis. The guidelines 2.0 have been recently uh, a past. There was a last moment uh, edits, which are now subject to lawsuits because of procedural failures, which uh, in last moment allowed wireless into the voting machines. And wireless has been banned before. And all of a sudden, how it's possible that in this environment, all of a sudden wireless would become or became allowed in voting machines. That blows my mind that we are right now taking serious steps backwards in security uh, a posture with these, these uh, guidelines. Just to also put the other aspect into that, voting system vendors have already said that even if these uh, guidelines are put in place to this year, they are not going to have a possibility to certify their systems uh, for next election, maybe even not the election after with these new guidelines. So we really need to set up a standards. We have a NIST, who, which is an agency capable of, of defining standards. We need to set up standards, make the standards mandatory, build the security standards, because really even the 2.0 doesn't have a security standards. It only gives a guidelines and not, not nearly specific enough to actually enforce any security. So that needs to happen. But most importantly, we have to go to the open research regime, 
where instead of having a private company hiring another private company and doing a security review or, or standard review in private, engage an open uh, research community, make it public. Of course, elections belong to the people. So I don't understand at all why a claim can be made that election systems are consisting trade secrets and, and, and secret specification. I thought the specification is called election law. So I don't understand why we cannot go and why there's a greater security committee who has been yelling about this 15 years, how important it is that we go independent security research, an open research regime. And to the question of whether we need a national standard? Yes, we need the national standard. We already have realized that only very few states have had the willingness and wisdom to do their own any kind of uh, research. They are just taking the vendor's word or they are relying on the fact that EAC, even when the EAC standard has, has nothing in security, uh, they're relying that uh, federal government is actually making the stamp for approval. So since the regime is that 45 states, uh, give or take, are completely relying already today of that federal certification, which is really useless in my opinion, but they're still relying that, make that then the count because, because the state, in fact, are already putting that as the, the stamp of approval. So we need to have a strong enforceable security standard. And again, even when, when the argument is repeatedly made that elections are state rights issue and states are doing it, reality today is that federal certification by EAC, which is silent and is volunteer, is still today that approval stamp, which most of the states are placing their decisions upon. So, Hari, Congress only has the authority per the Constitution to regulate federal elections. So the elections for president, congressman, you know, House and Senate. Yet most of the 13,000 election jurisdictions need federal funding to support their state and local elections. So mandates from Congress tied to federal funding could do some good. What about mandating cybersecurity reviews of election equipment and open review by the cybersecurity community? Would that help? And do you have other thoughts about requirements that could be pushed down by the federal government to help create some uniformity in approaches? What about our government funding generally thrown out to these jurisdictions? Well, first of all, Right now, the only thing which is in on the radar screen is the voting machines and the, the election uh, management system backends. All the other systems need to be roped in into the same regulated environment because all the other systems are also getting federal funding in from the same pool. This other part is that the election services companies, which today have no reporting requirements whatsoever, are largely paid by federal funding. So why we are allowing a, co- a set of companies who are benefiting from federal funding to be not regulated whatsoever in any shape or form. So again, I'm not an attorney, but when I look the, the picture and when I'm looking at the situation today, federal funding is extremely important. And also, Our election infrastructure today is old and tired. When the bulk of the systems uh, used today were purchased to all jurisdictions, 
That was done by federal funding of the Help America Vote Act between 2002 and 2004. These systems were old and tired already back then. But a lot of states, a lot of counties, they are only waiting for the next round of federal funding to replace these systems. But I thought we sent out about three or 400 million last year to the voting districts. So first of all, the 2002 funding was $3 billion. 300 million with the current way it is, it's a drop in the ocean. The other part of the problem is that even when a funding was approved by Congress for improvement in security and earmarked for that purpose, uh, after the money had been sent out and then uh, the uh, accountability office verified what the funding was used, under 40% of the funding was used to improve security or start audits together. So because of the uh, the, uh, administration then, gave a permission to the uh, the local jurisdiction to use the money, which was intended only to improve security, to use them for any election-related purposes. The money was used for everything else except what it was what it was supposed to be. So, yes, there's a lot of funding every year. There are special fundings, fundings which have been done. Nothing today as a funding is sufficient to actually change the infrastructure or make a infrastructure changes. And if the security funding is not used for security, then even that is diluted to the area where it doesn't cannot make a big difference in overall posture. You also have to remember the elections are very tight, which means that you cannot have a, a, a thought in your head. Only thing needed is to take care of the large jurisdictions and the small jurisdictions don't matter. We did for a study for Secretary of State, State uh, Ohio back years ago when Jennifer Branner was still Secretary of State, asking a question, how many counties outside of any significant city in Ohio you have to modify under 10% swing, which doesn't ever raise a, a, a uh, ear prow, so that you are affecting the outcome statewide and the numbers were scaringly low numbers of counties. So you you have to secure every county. You cannot go with the idea it's enough to secure the large ones. But if we had a requirement that these private sector companies that are involved and all this equipment that's involved at least go under security checks and those re- reviews be made public or at least be all provided to the election officials, wouldn't that help? It would help. Every single thing helps. Because um, that's not being done now, is it? It is not being done. And by the way, in Help America Vote Act 2002, there are still systems used which are not even compliant with, with the 2002. Basically, the idea was that if you you, you can get the help uh, the HAVA money only if you're buying a system, new system. But there are still counties which scaringly are using very old methods and systems which are not compliant with, with that. So enforcing is is very important part of that. Set and up without, a standard and enforce. And without any mandate, then they spend the money to buy more insecure equipment, right? Yeah, you have to you have to make a standard. You have to make a if you if you're handing over a money in a federal level, you should say this is the standard, and you can use this only if you are buying equipment, services, systems which are in compliance with this standard, and then make that standard to be verified by open research which cannot be paid by the vendors, 
Again, the key part here is that today, by using the claim of proprietary uh, software by trade secrets and whatnot, vendors have been sick, uh, have been trying in many different ways to uh, secondary research to not happen in a real sense instead of having a secondary research, which is a private with a standards, which are non-defined standards and not really anything meaningful. We, we need an open research. Gary? Well, you know, time is running out, but Harry, you are a founder of Voting Village, a cybersecurity group that meets annually at the DEF CON conference in Los Angeles and attempts to hack voting equipment. And, and uh, when I looked at the uh, Kill Chain movie, uh, you know, it was very interesting to see that gathering. I, I urge everybody who is a listener here to watch that movie. But what is the purpose of Voting Village and how has it helped to raise awareness on the Hill and with voting machine companies? When and I was one of the people who were writing a position paper when we requested uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act to have an, a secondary research exempt for voting machines, that's what made the Voting Village, Village possible. And Voting Village's mission is educational. We are, Voting Village is there only three days a year. And as a, the, the director of cyber of NSA, he said that if you don't understand that this kind of rooms are operating in adversary countries 24-7, 365 days a year, you are kidding yourself. So our mission was educational to show, to allow election officials stakeholders themselves to come and verify with their own eyes and skills what are the security claims, how real they are, what are the vulnerabilities. That educational mission was our start. We are obviously very much a platform. If open research becomes a norm, that development open open research to other industries. Electronic industry is 30 years behind in security thinking of other industries. So we would be a natural party to help to, to start the open research community for this and, and facilitate the open research by providing, we are building right now a election research laboratory in Quantico, for example, uh, in our foundation. So we are doing efforts to transition from a educational to a formal validation and research. Again, three-day event is never security research. We never were intended to find the new vulnerabilities, and yet every year we have found new vulnerabilities. And that's the other part of this. Even a voting machine, which everybody has been researching 15 years, all of a sudden new vulnerabilities are found. And that is just telling how little these systems have been studied because there's no open research. It has been always a very small group of very limited number of people who have been have been privileged and allowed to study these machines with a very limited resources and time available and a lot of restrictions. Well, it seemed pretty clear that we we have a long way to go, and uh, this has been a, an enlightening discussion for our listeners and for Jody and me. Thank you for joining us, Hari, and uh, thank you for all you're doing. To thank, try you. To- thank you, Hari. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you enjoy the show and want more content on the issues we cover, you can visit adcg.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use code POD at checkout for 50% off membership. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.